property investing is a long-term asset and it's difficult it is difficult the type of property and the quality of property that you invest in is more critical today than what it was 10 20 or 30 years ago a lot of investors think about return well before they think about risk but it should be the other way around if that's not clear and there's no evidence that it's happened in the past then all you're doing is throwing darts at a dartboard welcome to perth property insider where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management, sales and buyers agency servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here's your host, Jared Mann. G'day, Stuart. Thanks for joining us on the podcast again. I know our listeners love your episodes, so looking forward to diving deep into a new topic today. Yeah, great to be back with you again, Jared. Thanks for the invite. Now, of course, you're my um, financial planner. I love listening to your podcast, Investopoly. And some time ago, you had a topic that property investors need to be more fussy. And as soon as I listened to this, it just struck a chord and I thought, I've got to share this with my listeners as well, because it really hits home as to, you know, some of the more longer term considerations that you can't go back and change once you get too far down the road. So tell us about your position on on being more fussy and how you came up with this. Well, I think, you know, if you look back over the last, let, let's let's think quite long-term because, I mean, at the end of the day, pro- property investing is a, a long-term asset and, and it's difficult. It is difficult psychologically for human beings to get their head around large numbers and head around compounding. It just doesn't come naturally to us. It's easy to think what could a property be worth in three, four, five years from now, but it's really difficult to conceptualise how much it could be worth twenty years from now. But, but be that as it may, let's just talk about you know really long term trends. And so, if we think, if we look back so the last twenty or thirty years, you probably could have bought any property anywhere in Australia, almost, not obviously not to the extremes, but in any of the capital cities and done pretty well. Do you know what I mean? You're probably sitting on, you know, maybe it's three or four times the, the worth what it is today compared to what you paid for it. You know, you'd have a lot of equity in the property. It's probably positive cash flow. You know, it's paying for itself. It's delivering income stream and so forth. And really, in a in a rising tide, all all ships rise. And so I think that's certainly what Australia has benefited from over the last 30 plus years is a rising tide. My concern though, Jared, and the reason I wrote the blog is, will that rising tide continue? Because there's been a lot of sort of talk and there's continual talk around housing affordability. You know, if if house prices are rising much faster than people's incomes, how will we ever be able to continue to afford to own property? And at a macro level, at a, a total level, that's correct. Now, what the, the biggest factor that's contributed, I mean, there's lots of factors that have contributed to rising prices in Australia. Yeah, it'd be good to go back through some of those because I know they've been pretty significant, haven't they? Yeah, that's right. You look at population growth. Uh, I mean, Australia's population growth over the last 30 years in a, in a developed economy has been very high compared to other developed economies. Uh, you've got income income increases as well. I mean, they don't always reflect in those those wage price indexes and so forth that the RBA look at. But certainly there's a cohort of Australians that have a much higher earning capacity today or than what they did 30 years ago, partly because, you know, I'm sitting in Melbourne and I can interview for a job in New York if I want to. 
particularly if, if I'm working, you know, I don't have to attend the office and so forth. So globalization and work from home has certainly helped people increase their earning capacity. But really the biggest contributor, in my opinion, is borrowing capacity. And if we look back in the 80s and even early 90s, it was a very regulated industry. You had the big four banks and it was very antiquated, quite old-fashioned, very conservative. And really Aussie Home Loans was probably the, the first business that got into the mortgage lending market that really brought a lot of competition. And then the internet has then helped that competition two ways. Firstly, it's been easier for smaller banks to compete with the larger banks just online and to, to get a bit of a presence. They don't need branches, yeah, particularly today. I mean, I don't know when the last time you walked. The big four seem to be closing their branches at the moment. You, one minute you you got somewhere to visit, the next minute they're not there. I mean, no one's even using cash these days. So, <laughs> uh, And uh, so in, internet has helped that. Uh, and then internet has helped inform people, help people make really better informed decisions. So even around borrowing capacity, for example, if you wanted to find the lender 30 years ago that was going to lend you the most so that you could get into the property market, that's a lot of footwork and a lot of talking to different people and go- visiting branches and bank managers and those sorts of things. Yeah, you'd almost get stuck and then you'd hit the wall and that would be it. And today it's a Google. You know, you could Google that or even just contact a mortgage broker and they'll do all the all the work for you. So 30 years ago, your borrowing capacity was about a third of what it is today. If we're looking at sort of how much can you borrow compared to your income and how much can people borrow compared to their income today, two to three times it's changed over that period of time, partly because of competition, partly because of deregulation, partly because because of deregulation of the banking industry, but better regulation of you know how they how banks approve and, and provide lending as well. But if we then ask ourselves, will that repeat itself? Like, will borrowing capacity be two or three times higher again in 20 or 30 years from now? I just can't see it. I think it's just a different regulatory environment. If you go back 20 years ago, when I started my business, to go and apply for a loan was a very simple process. You know, they barely asked any questions. You barely had to provide any documentation. You know, it was very, it was very loose. I remember around those times it was... No doc loans and, you know, you'd just sign a piece of paper virtually and saying you can afford it and there was no real vetting and you could get 70% no doc loans and it was, yeah. That's right. I, mean, I remember doing some of the first loans. We did the client when purchased the property, we settled and then they came to us and, oh, we don't actually have a loan application for this. We better get an application form signed. Like it was very, very loose. These days they want almost fingerprints and you know, blood types and all those sorts of things, they'll ask a whole heap of questions. So if we can't rely on rising borrowing capacity, then arguably we won't have a rising tide over the next one, two, three, four decades, whatever it is. And therefore, it's my view that the type of property and the quality of property that you invest in is more critical to today than what it was 10, 20, or 30 years ago because of that sort of rising tide, mostly because of borrowing capacity. Well, the other structural shift that happened in that period as well is that we went from, you know, single income households where my mum was a stay-at-home mum and that was her job. You know, she she might have had a little bit of part-time work here or there, but no, never even contemplated going back full-time. And these days, the double income is pretty standard. So, 
what does that do for our household's borrowing capacity as well? I mean, you'd see it just on the financial side from people, so it makes a big difference. Yep. When my parents bought their first home, I think in early 70s, uh, my mum was working and the bank manager wouldn't even take her her income into account. <laughs> you don't take the wife's income into account. You know, there was, So it has changed. It has changed a lot, of course. And uh, look, look, sometimes people will go or will sort of test that thesis in terms of rising tide and try and pick properties that or locations that are likely to provide above average growth or, you know, sort of the next growth suburb or those sorts of things. The hot spot. So, it, yeah, that's right, the hot spot. So I'm not saying that there won't be hot spots in the future. I think there's, there will always be hot spots. And, and to my mind, a hot spot is a, is a location or type of property that provides uh, above average growth, but for a very finite period of time. So you might have a suburb that is undervalued. They get some infrastructure, a highway or a hospital or something that really, or, or some industry moves into town or big employer or whatever it might be, something that changes the demand supply dynamics, but not permanently, you know, the, because, because it can't continue to perpetually climb. So you might get an area that's going to have 10% growth, on average for the next five years, but then we'll just revert to, you know, pretty ordinary growth longer term. There's always going to be those sorts of locations. There has been in past 30 years, there will be for the next 30 years. The problem though, as a property investor, to try and invest in those locations, it's quite risky. You need to first pick it. You can't be too early because otherwise, you know, you could invest in location and get no growth for the first five years. So you want to pick the, the right location, buy it at the right time, then you've got to decide when to exit because if you're going to invest in something that's not going to give you that perpetual capital growth, at some point you're better off taking your equity and investing somewhere else. And so there will be there will be locations in Australia that will outperform capital cities over finite periods of time. There's no doubt. I'm not saying that won't happen. It will happen. It's really just about trying to find the assets that are going to give you 7 8 maybe 9% on average, for a 30-year period, because that's really where you're going to do all the heavy lifting. That's really where you're going to really enjoy that compounding capital growth. And I would rather put my eggs in one really good quality basket and buy one great asset that's going to have those fundamentals than try and then end up with sort of three very average quality assets that might not perform as I hope. Well, when you look at this quantity over quality discussion i mean every few months there's a story online isn't there that someone in their 30s has got 12 properties and you can do it too and what's the trouble with that and and how do you see through to what's important yeah so i mean i started my business in 2002 so 21 ish years ago i probably looked at literally thousands tens of thousands of different property portfolios i haven't met one person that has been able to acquire a huge amount of assets that that are of average quality. I've met plenty of people or know plenty of people that have a, la- a very large property portfolio of several assets, but they, they're, they're always high quality type assets. So the problem is that you can't, if, if you want average or above average returns, you can't expect to get those returns from a below average quality product. Or, or investment. It's just it's just not going to happen. And it sort of stands to logic that 
the quality will determine long-term returns at the end of the day. The 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 sentiment, the market sentiment will determine determine short-term returns. And we only need to look back through the COVID period as a great example of that. Through COVID, you know, those beachside or, or even regional capital cities were, do, was, were doing incredibly well. Everyone was deciding no one needs to be in the city anymore. We're all going to move to the coast or out to the country and, and capital cities are over. Now, of course, that transition is reversing itself now. But in the short term, they became very popular and prices started to rise. It's really the long-term dynamics that ultimately are going to play out that, that are going to have a big impact on your investment portfolio. The, the short-term noise is always going to be around. And of course, when you have got lots of properties by number and you're telling all your friends about it, I liked your analogy that it's like a, a person that's in business boasting to their friends about how many staff they have. Anyone with staff and lots of them quickly works out that that's not the goal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, look, I think you, you know I've met people over the time that have come to me and said, "Stuart, I want I want to uh, prop, I want to buy ten properties over the next five. Well, that's the classic one that I hear. Yeah, or, or some something some sort of notional sort of number like that. And and look, I think it's good to have financial goals, of course. Yeah, it's a, a, having some goals better than no goal, but they don't they aren't particularly meaningful i mean we could all probably or most people could buy another 10 properties over the next six months it's just a question of where they are and how much they cost and you know all those sorts of things but um, there's a lot of people that could do that but it's not necessarily going to to get where get you where you're going and this this notion of i'd rather have one great property than ego filled five property portfolio that i can go and tell family and friends at dinner parties on the weekend about this notion sort of flies in the face of that and realizes hopefully encourages people to realize its quality over quantity and and that is uh, even more important today than what it was previously and the, the other thing jared is that the number of properties won't pay your living expenses 10 properties is meaningless compared to what your living expenses are you, you're going to pay your living expenses in dollars of course not in percentages and not in number of properties and that's the that's the main thing to i think understand that if you had one property but in dollar terms it's growing at a certain rate each year more than what you could possibly spend in retirement then that's the easiest way to really build independence and what i did is i put a tried to demonstrate or help people understand how that compounding growth uh, happens over time and so if you look at a million dollar property growing at 7%, and 7% is sort of long-term average growth in most major capital cities in Australia. So looking at over the last 40-ish years, 40 plus years. So that's a real that's a realistic long-term growth rate. If you have a look at that, in the in the first 10 years, that property will be worth circa $2 million. You know, it's doubled over that first 10 years. So you've made almost a million dollars of equity or a hundred thousand dollars a year. In the fourth decade, so year sort of 31 to year 40, and I know that's a very long period of time, but just to really demonstrate, the amount of equity growth you'll experience in that decade is $7.4 million. So your property is increasing by $700,000 a year. Now, in 40 years, $700,000 won't be worth what it is today, but it'll still be a whole lot of money and more money than anyone will ever really spend. So it's great to look at 
okay, these are the number of properties, you know, this is my portfolio, those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, what we really want to know is how much will our property appreciate on average every year? Because if I've got a relatively small amount of super, but then this one property that's growing on average by half a million dollars a year, for example, I don't have a problem. Like in terms of funding retirement, I don't have a problem. And so it's really about how do I invest or what property do I need to invest in so I do get that dollar value worth of growth uh, on average over long periods of time on average every year. And I guess it makes sense then if it's going to be potentially we've we've all got more limited borrowing capacity, especially as if when rates interest rates move back to more towards their longer term average, we've we've only that borrowing capacity is a precious resource. So I guess that's why we need to be fussier with what we're looking to buy ultimately, because not everything is as likely to perform as well as it has done in the past. Not every property type, not the tide is not as likely to lift all boats. And even if you're a betting man, it's a case of doing this with the least amount of risk and in the most optimum way, which is I've heard you say quite a number of times. So it's not to say that the other approach definitely won't work, but for me, it's like, well, if I want to do this in the, the least risky way in the most optimum way with the most evidence behind it where am i going to place my bet yeah it's a great it's a great point jared i mean a lot of investors think about return well before they think about risk but it should be the other way around it should be trying to de-risk your investment strategy as much as possible which makes it very boring of course you know it's not investing in bitcoin that's exciting because no one knows it could work it could triple in value over the next year or it could halve in value. You know, one knows and it's exciting. But a good, sound investment strategy shouldn't be exciting. It should be really boring. And the reason it should be really boring is that you should take as much risk out of it as possible or put it a different way, give yourself the highest probability of actually achieving your lifestyle goals. And so if we think about this logically, and I want to invest in a property today so that in 20 years it's worth four times its value, which which is what it will be if it, you get 7% growth. What do I think is most likely? If I buy a property in this new build area that that's kind of up and coming, but it's 40Ks out of the CBD and, and, to, and takes a long time to drive to, it doesn't have as much uh, employment opportunities, all these sorts of things. Or should I invest in a location, a blue chip suburb, that has heaps of evidence that have demonstrated that it's grown way more than 7% over the last 40 years that benefits from finite supply and just increasing demand. They're my two options. Which one do I think has the highest probability of actually working? Well, clearly the one that's had the evidence, the blue chip suburb, but it's boring. And quite often as human beings, we like to try and take some shortcuts and there, but there are no shortcuts and there's a great quote by Warren Buffett he says you can't make a baby in one month by getting nine women pregnant you know some some things just take, yeah some things just take time and, and it's true a good quality property asset just takes time you can buy something that's a fantastic quality property and in 10 years time you may or may not be actually better off for it in 20 years time you'll most certainly be better off for it Sometimes properties do take a long, a long time to work, but really if you do want that strong level of compounding capital growth, something that is going to appreciate by several hundred thousand dollars a year, 
property is by far uh, by far the easiest way to do that over a long time. The other downside of purchasing that you know less quality property that might grow sporadically and then do nothing for a long time is that if you decide to eventually sell out of that asset, of course you're realizing again you're swapping around your assets, you're paying entry and exit costs. This is a lot of my trouble when I started out. I did things all focused on the short term, so I made great money in that renovation. I felt like I was hands-on. I I made great money in that development, but it didn't suit to hold the property longer term or I was in with a partner or, you know, having a partner enabled me to do more quicker and feel like I was getting ahead. But then after a few years, you look back and it's like, oh, how much tax did I pay? How much GST did I pay? How, you know, how much effort did I make? Did I really get ahead? And if, of course, if I just let that compound out in a more quality asset over time, then you know, I'd be a lot better off today. So, There's a study by a fund manager in the US, I forget the name now, but they did this, uh, a very large fund manager, and they did this study of the best performing accounts. And the best performing accounts, uh, they concluded, was inactive accounts, people that actually passed away. So the, And the reason they were best performing is that they weren't shopping and changing that they stuck with one investment. They didn't sell down and buy and sell and do all that sort of stuff. They just stuck with one investment. Now, of course, sometimes you have to sell. Sometimes sometimes the the best laid plans don't always work out. You know, you you can't you you can't just um, close your eyes and hope for the it's best. It's not to say don't be sell a property if you need to. And, you know, if your larger goals revolve around your home and you're fulfilling that lifestyle dream, you know, what do we invest for? Well, if, if we don't get something out of it and can't realize those home dreams sometimes it does need assets to be sold so it's not don't listen to a snippet of what we say and like never sell anything yeah or or maybe it didn't turn out how you hoped you know maybe you you thought it was a good investment property but it hasn't turned out how you'd hoped and and you've concluded that maybe it won't in which case then you then you do have to sell but Apart from that, if all you can do, and this is true with any asset class, whether it's property shares or anything else, if all you can do is go and buy a really good quality asset and then forget that you own it, which is not to say you shouldn't review it, but forget that you own it so you just hold it for longer term, that's really the easiest way to build wealth. But the the issue is that we, as human beings, like to tinker with things and we think we're a little bit smarter and maybe we could extract a few more return, a bit more return and so forth, but... I mean, have a look at some of you know some of the older people today that bought property forty years ago. There wasn't a lot of science to it. You speak to them, and they say, "Oh, I just bought land value." Yeah, you know, in these areas, the simplicity of it uh, really has to carry some weight too. You're waiting to, for some extra secret or you know something that you don't know. Yeah, well, we think uh, building wealth is a complex problem, and complex problems therefore should have complex solutions. But it, it's not true. The the simplest solutions are often the best. They're the low cost, they're low risk, and they're easy to to implement. And it's true with property. And it's and it's no different to this whole property portfolio argument that. And you'll keep seeing of it's been there been uh, you know every few months for the last twenty years. There's an article of how some thirty something year old has acquired, like you mentioned before, Jared, ten properties over the last six months or something. There'll, there'll continue to be articles like that. That's fine. That's clickbait, but the real focus should be really around how does it actually work and what? how can I make a really good quality decision? And a lot of investing is really just basic logic. It's it's not 
any more uh, complex than that. Well, I think a p- couple of the hurdles, just to touch on, and maybe you can tell us how you've helped your clients get over them, is people say to me, oh, Jared, you know, isn't it riskier having all the money in the one property? And I'd feel more comfortable owning three instead of this one. What do you say to that if someone's still not con- convinced? I think there's a lot of merit in having multiple assets because it does spread your risk. It does spread your geographical risk. It means that, you know, the risk of vacancy is lower. I mean, you might have three assets that all three probably won't be vacant at one particular time. Those different areas, different geographical areas will grow at different paces over different times. So at a portfolio level, it spreads it out. All those things are important, but important from year to year, perhaps, but not so important over the very long term. Over the very long term, the most important thing is performance. And I agree that putting all your eggs in one basket by in in of itself isn't a great strategy. But if what you're doing is putting it in the highest quality basket you can find, then what it will do is reduce your risk and increase your probability of achieving your goals. So I would do it every day of the week. I would like you know, if, if you had the capacity to, it'd be great to have more than one property, of course. But if the decision was invest in three average quality properties or one awesome one, one awesome one is going to win every single day of the week. That's presuming the person can afford to hold it and afford to keep it and, you know, it fits with their overall plan as well. Yep. Other thing people say is, you know, oh, it's going to take me longer to save up for that better quality one. I can see the market, you know, increasing and it's so tempting, especially when we're in Perth at the moment. It's like, well, I can see it increasing every month. It's going to take me longer to save. Like, what do I do? And look, it's true, but if it was easy, everyone would be doing it. That's that's really the answer to probably a lot of things in life. The easy option isn't always... The, the right option. In fact, the easy it's option. It's just so tempting. You get a little bit of money in your accounts and you're like, oh, I can do a deposit for a lower price one. I could, you know, I can do that now. And it takes a lot of discipline to just be like, no, I'm going to wait, keep saving, keep working the plan to the larger asset at that time later. Yeah, and you, you got to be really sick too. I mean, if you're miles away from being able to- Yeah, exactly. If, if your savings rate's really low- if it's really not going to change much, even in two, three, five years, then you know maybe you do need to look at okay, I'm going to buy the best quality that I can afford, and still get in the market, still have some return as opposed to no return for for a long time, for or for indefinitely. Yeah, or you might be able to leapfrog yourself and you know do, and do everything that we just said you shouldn't do, which is take a short term decision and maybe then create some equity. So. It's really about working out a plan. How do I get there? You know, if you can't make it in one move, how can you do it? Do you need to really work on your career and your income earning capacity so it increases your borrowing capacity? If so, you can do that in the next couple of years. Maybe if you're a little bit weaker on equity, maybe go and buy something that you can renovate to create some equity to sort of improve your position. But at the end of the day, if you... And it's classic how people do that with their homes as well. And I know you've been quite an advocate of maybe getting to that dream home takes you a few moves and you know if you're handy and you're able to improve a house along the way too and do that without paying capital gains tax then that stepping stone approach can work yeah definitely and even looking at your your home as as like an investment itself as well so i mean for people that for example had 
an average quality home from an investment perspective, an average quality investment property, maybe they'll be better off just putting those into one asset and then occupying a great investment property, for example. People are surprised when I tell them this as well. They think I'm just, I'm called Investor's Edge. I'm all about investing. It's only investment properties. No, the, the two things are completely related and the whole picture needs to be looked at. Yeah, I think it's a, you know, I wrote a book a few years ago called The Property Puzzle. And it really is, and the reason I came with the title is it really is a bit of a puzzle. You got to put all those pieces together, like borrowing capacity, where I want to live, what are my goals, what's my cash flow look like? And then you've got to design the strategy that works for you. But the really important thing is to realize how is a strategy going to work? So if you're being presented with a particular opportunity, someone, one of my wife's friends uh, called, called my wife up and said, oh, I'm going to see these property people. They're going to, they've got this property. It's a new build sort of property. And they reckon it's not going to cost me very much out of pocket. And, you know, it's in this area. And it sounded like a great opportunity to her. And of course, Jared, you and I would know from just that brief description, she was being sold a property from a developer and it's probably not going to be a really good investment. So I think that's the thing that people need to educate themselves on is how is it going to work? You know, does it have the fundamentals? What happens if, you know, borrowing capacity and incomes are stagnant in Australia for the next 20 years? How is the demand going to push prices higher on this property? And if if that's not clear and there's no evidence that it's happened in the past, then all you're doing is throwing darts at a dartboard. But educating yourself about, you know, logically, how can this work, uh, I think is the, the best way to mitigate risk and, and also mitigate making a mistake. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I don't know if you could hear my um, thunderstorm and massive downpour of rain happening in the background. I was trying to mute it out. So hopefully people can still hear you talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, well, it's good that it's raining somewhere else other than Melbourne for a change. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. Oh, good. Thanks, Jared. Catch you on the next one. Just a reminder, the information discussed in this podcast is general in nature. As we don't know your specific situation, you should always seek professional advice before taking any action. For free market reports on your suburb of interest and other helpful resources to grow your wealth, make sure you join my property investor update at investorshedge.com.au slash join. And finally, make sure you're a member of our Perth Property Investment Facebook group. To be part of the conversation with other like-minded investors, get help to your questions and get a feel for what's going on out there in the market. I'll see you in the group.